This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on the treatment needs of people with HIV and AIDS. This is, as you probably know, World AIDS Day, so I figured it was an appropriate topic. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Over the next hour, we're going to explore the physical, affective, cognitive, environmental, and relational needs of people living with HIV, and specifically what we as behavioral health professionals can do to facilitate people with HIV in having their highest quality of life. Physically, HIV and HIV meds take a toll on people's body. A lot of people with HIV, and I'm just going to shorten it to HIV instead of saying HIV and AIDS throughout the rest of it. You can uh, just assume I mean both. Uh, people with HIV tend to have difficulty with energy and fatigue at certain points, if not throughout uh the course of their illness. Some of the time it's because their bad body is battling the virus, which requires a lot of energy. Other times it's just because of mental stress, physical stress. And the third reason that people's energy may be low is because of medication side effects that either make them sleepy or fatigued or impair their ability to get quality sleep. So what can we do? Well, we can help people change their routines a little bit. If they're battling the virus, just like if you had the flu or any other illness or you had something going on like after a death when you're recuperating emotionally from something, sometimes we need to look at our routine and figure out what things don't have to be done. Encouraging people to look at their routines identify the things that they have to do and figure out how to do it, who can help them, how to simplify it, um, as well as looking at those routines, also making sure that they are adding in things that help them feel happy and energized. Acupuncture and nutrition were both mentioned as other uh, interventions that can help in some people with energy and fatigue. Sometimes with the HIV meds, the person's GI system gets a little bit wonky and they have more difficulty with uh, nutrient absorption. Sometimes they don't have an appetite, so it is harder for them to want to eat. And other times they just need more of certain nutrients to help their body battle the virus and uh, maintain their immune system. Obviously, unless you are a registered dietitian, you are not going to prescribe nutrition, but it is important to recognize that nutrition is an effective intervention in many 
cases. So a referral to a dietitian or back to the primary care or whomever is treating the person is potentially warranted. Sleep can be challenging. As I said uh, earlier, sometimes it's because of the medication side effects. Sometimes the circadian rhythms get out of whack because the person is so fatigued and they're not getting outside. They're not getting bright light. There's a lot of reasons. And while we obviously, again, aren't going to encourage them to take certain supplements or anything like that, uh, we can help them evaluate their sleep hygiene and make sure that they are considering doing everything possible to ensure the highest quality sleep every night. Another issue that comes up is autoimmune issues. Now, HIV is a virus that takes its toll on the immune system, and we know autoimmune conditions are caused when the immune system, for lack of a more clinical word right now, goes haywire. There is a lot of inflammation that can occur uh, because of the virus in the body, because of the HIV virus, and that can make autoimmune issues worse. Um, they've also found that there is a higher correlation of autoimmune issues with, uh, in people with HIV. Remembering that one of the hallmarks of autoimmune issues is inflammation, and one of the one of the things that has a strong correlation to clinical depression is also inflammation. So inflammation and uh, low energy and fatigue can all contribute to mood symptoms that might be causing the person to present for behavioral health care. Balance and coordination is another issue that can be problematic in people with uh, HIV. We want to, that can be because of the virus, but more often it's because, uh, and, and um, neurodegenerative problems, but it also can be because of the medication. Cause is not something that we be as concerned about. That's what the doctor will work with them on. But we can help work with them on brainstorming environmental modifications, such as grab bars in the bathroom and in the tub, and things that they can do if they've got uh, stairs in their house, for example. Maybe they need to get a lift installed if they can afford it. And different things that they may need to do if they can't do that. Can they move their bedroom down to the main floor so they're not at risk of falling down the stairs? Some people will need basically round-the-clock stability assistance, in, and that can be a walker or a cane or something to help them with their stability. Others respond okay. It's not perfect by any means, but they have shown that physical therapy can be very helpful at helping people restore uh, some of their proprioceptive senses. Medication interactions is the final area of physical issues that we'll, we'll talk about for people with HIV. And a lot of the um, HIV medications, the antiretroviral therapeutics, can cause gastric upset. So there may be some stomach problems, some stomach pain caused by the medications. Again, it may impair the body's ability to break down the food that the person eats and absorb it. Uh, it likely alters the gut microbiome. So we know that that creates a cascade of other effects. We need to be aware of that. We need to help people advocate for themselves 
in terms of gastric upset, and we need to talk with them about ways that gastric upset might be preventing them from being medication compliant or for being treatment compliant and encourage them, again, to talk with their doctor about things that they can do to handle that, to deal with it. But we also do want to recognize that gastric upset can be very frustrating and it can be very painful uh, to have. I mean, any of us who've ever had heartburn for a short period of time have had a little mini glimpse into what that might be like. And you know, for a lot of people, when you're in pain, it makes it more difficult to have that rich and meaningful life, especially when it's, you know, pretty intense pain. And medications uh, for both gastric upset and cardiovascular issues interact with a lot of the antiretrovirals, a lot of the HIV meds. It's going to be important that the person make sure to discuss these issues uh, with their doctor. We don't want them just r randomly taking Pepsid or something uh, when they've got a stomach... Uh, stomach upset if they're on antiretrovirals. That's something that they really, they do need to be very cognizant of the medications that they're taking and how it might be, um, how, how it might interact with the antiretrovirals, whether it makes them less effective. I guess I lied. There were more physical issues we're going to talk about. Sexual dysfunction can be very debilitating for a lot of people. And they found that especially in men, sexual dysfunction is related to the CD4 count because as the CD4 count um, becomes impaired, it impacts the pituitary gland, which impacts gonadal hormone levels. So testosterone goes down. Is That's the long way of saying testosterone goes down. And people may have more difficulty with um, sexual performance. Now, that can cause a lot of issues, not only in, with self-esteem, but also in their relationships. And it's important to make sure that people know that sexual dysfunction is not uncommon in people with HIV. Again, advocate for them, with them, uh, to go talk to their doctor about it. It's possible that they may need to have their hormone levels um, adjusted. There are physiological things uh, that medical doctors can do to help with some of these issues. But from a behavioral health standpoint, we want to help people address their their relationship issues, their self-esteem issues related to this sexual dysfunction. In what ways, if they're in a relationship with a partner, in what ways can they, for example, satisfy their partner if they are not able to perform in the way that they want? Hypothyroid is another common condition, not only with chronic stress, but also is seen in people who have HIV or AIDS and have had it for a while. So the thought is that the extended stress caused by the virus on the body may contribute to that hypothyroid. If people are presenting with symptoms of depression, it is, you know, important for us to make sure that, you know, obviously we address those things cognitively, affectively as much as we can, but also ask them, have they had blood work done lately? Have they had their thyroid tested to make sure that that isn't something that has started to occur. Hypothyroid can occur at any point in a person's life. It's not necessarily right at the beginning of the disease or, you know, has always been there. It can occur at any point. So if they suddenly start having difficulty with energy and weight gain and um, constipation, dry skin, those are some things that 
may indicate that it's more than just an affective condition. Hypertension uh, is often caused in people with HIV because of chronic inflammation as a result of the disease what they call immune reconstitution. That means the immune system going a little bit wonky. Uh, lipodystrophy and just plain old stress from having the disease, from dealing with stigma, from dealing with some of the other physical, cognitive, affective, interpersonal fallout, uh, so to speak, from having or changes from having HIV. Any of these can contribute to the development or worsen Hypertension. Hypertension obviously is a cardiovascular issue. When blood pressure goes up, people are at greater risk of stroke. Stroke puts them at greater risk for dementia. Um, we also know that people with hypertension tend to have lower levels of oxygenation, which can contribute to feelings of uh, foggy headedness, confusion, apathy. But hypertension can also be associated with certain feelings of anxiety, the tightness in the chest, the palpitation. We want to be aware of this and make sure that we're not, again, assuming something is behavioral or um, cognitive, affective, uh, at the expense of or discounting all other potential causes. Hypertension does need to be controlled, obviously, for health in order to protect the body, in order to preserve the immune system as long as possible, as well as to preserve cognitive and abilities and uh, improve. Pain is yet another issue that comes up, and there can be multiple different sources of pain in, with HIV. Chronic pain in HIV can be caused by opportunistic infections, cancers, gut problems, or peripheral neuropathy. Now, they found that a lot of the older antiretrovirals tended to actually cause or contribute to the development of peripheral neuropathy. The newer generation medications have a much lower incidence of that happening, but we need to be aware that peripheral neuropathy can develop. If you're unfamiliar, peripheral neuropathy means pain in the nerves in in your extremities, basically, in your toes, in your fingers, uh, more specifically. So we want to be cognizant, cognizant of that. Peripheral, sorry, peripheral neuropathy can be extremely painful. And people with diabetes are very familiar with watching out for the symptoms of peripheral neuropathy. Uh, remember that diabetes is also a, has also been linked both type one and type two to autoimmune issues. And we know that people with autoimmune issues, if they have one, they're more likely to have multiple autoimmune issues. So we want to be aware, we do want to be screening for the onset of any sort of autoimmune condition or peripheral neuropathy. If somebody's experiencing pain, they need to go back to their doctor. They need to talk with their physician about what options are available, pharmacological and non-pharmacological. We can, with some pain, with some chronic pains like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, some of those inflammations, we can help people with stress management techniques, guided imagery to help tamp down or re-regulate, down-regulate that HPA axis some, and also help them with some cognitive strategies to deal with, to cope with the pain. It's not going to make it go away completely. And we can also help people be realistic, understanding that expecting, even if you're 
HIV negative, expecting to be pain-free all the time is, is just not realistic. So how can you live your highest quality of life and cope with this pain? The other main source of pain for people with HIV is, again, their medication. Uh, the, medica- the antiretrovirals can cause muscle pain, headaches, stomach cramps, or even kidney stone. If they're having problems, if they seem to identify that the pain is directly related to their meds, the doctor can potentially help them figure out ways to address the side effects. Maybe they need to eat something before they take their medication. Maybe they need to take it at night before, right before they go to sleep so they don't notice it as much. The doctor can, can work with them. And addiction is also another huge risk factor, a huge issue for people with HIV. If they had an addiction prior to the development of the disease, then it's important to help them figure out how to address it and work towards recovery because addiction, whether it's chemical or process, is going to add stress to the body. It's going to contribute to immune system impairment, and it's going to work counter to what the person is trying to do um, with regard to managing the HIV. When I say chemical or process addictions, we're all familiar with the chemical addictions. Your marijuana, your um, alcohol, your nicotine, you know, all of those things, cocaine, the list is long. Process addictions are your sex addiction, your pornography addiction, your gambling addiction. Those things can produce a significant dopamine surge, a significant norepinephrine surge, maybe not to the same extent as methamphetamine, but it is, it still can create an environment that can be neurotoxic and stressful on the body. And what we're really going to be aiming to help people do is figure out how to regulate their stress as much as possible so their HPA axis is not overactive and their body can focus on bolstering that immune system and keeping them healthy. Affectively, and whereas with the physical aspect, a lot of times we're dealing almost exclusively with the identified patient and helping them figure out how to deal with side effects and be med compliant, their motivation compliance. Affectively, there's often a lot of stuff that not only the person with HIV needs to deal with, but also their family. And there may be some family sessions in there, or there may be um, referrals that need to be made for family members. In general, we want to make sure that both the individual and their significant others understand that some HIV medications may cause symptoms of mood disorders and disrupt sleep. And if they notice that, it's going to be important for them to communicate with their treatment team to figure out the best ways to address because mood disorders are going to increase stress, which are going to make it harder for the immune system to do its job. HIV medications can also interact with many, many psychotropics that induce or inhibit the enzyme cytochrome P450. And I've linked to those. As behavioral health clinicians, we're not going to be changing their medications. We're not prescribers. It is, however, important to just be aware that HIV medications interact with a lot of stuff, over-the-counter and prescription. So what the person can take may be relatively limited. And But if they're having difficulty with mood symptoms, cognitive symptoms, pain, it still is important for them to talk with their doctor to figure out 
what's the best course of action? Affectively, people may experience anger when they get their diagnosis or during, throughout the course of their diagnosis. They may be angry that they have their diagnosis, angry at themselves, wondering what, you know, trying to think about what they did that may have contributed it to it. They may be angry at their higher power. They may be angry about the side effects they're having and the fact that there's no treatment. There's a lot of different things that people may be angry about. And remember, anger is a response to a threat, feeling unsafe or disempowered. So we want to explore with them what things that they are feeling angry about and encourage them to keep a journal, keep a log, whatever they're willing to do. So you can explore each of those issues with the person so they're not holding on to this anger and, and seething or, or stewing in it. There can also be angry anger at other people, you know, however, whoever gave it to them, if they feel they got it from somebody, which they probably did, um, they may be angry at other people who don't have the disease because they feel it's unfair. They may be angry at other people who are rejecting to them or stigmatizing. Um, there's a lot of stuff that people may be angry about when people have HIV, not, not just when they're initially diagnosed, but when they have it, there is a grief process that they are going to have to go through. And just like anything else, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and hopefully we get to acceptance. People with HIV often have health anxiety. And oh, going back to anger, significant others may be angry at the person who has HIV and blame them for their current condition. And we need to help them consider working through that because the blame game's not going to change anything and explore with them what that means and the fact that they're angry at that person because they're grieving the fact preemptively grieving the fact that they that person may um, not be with them as long as they had hoped and just prelude to I believe Thursday I don't think I'm talking about it today with the new medications that are out there, they've found that the lifespan of people with HIV, if it's well, man well managed, is actually really not that much different than people who are HIV negative. So we do want to make sure that we're providing hope. Moving on to anxiety. People can have health anxiety. A Every time they get a pain or a sniffle or something changes, they may worry that their disease is progressing. And we need to help them develop strategy to tolerate the distress and to look at the facts in the situation. Talk with their doctor and know when is it that I need to call you to come in. You know, what would be an indication that is getting worse? They may also have anxiety about getting other people sick. So we need to educate them about how HIV is transmitted and steps people can take to keep themselves safe. If they have HIV, they don't know when they got it and they've recently had a baby, they may be concerned that the baby is infected. I think as a matter of course now, most um, OBGYNs OBG test for HIV in during the prenatal care period. So likely that wouldn't happen, but there can be a lot of ambiguity and anxiety in people. And we need to encourage them when they start feeling anxiety to look at the facts, what's going on right now. 
you know, and, you know, if you're you wake up and you're sniffly and you feel like crap, which can be uh, a recapitulation of the flu like symptoms that they had in the first phase of the disease, Uh, they may worry that all of a sudden they're progressing. And it's important to look at the facts in this situation. Is it flu season? Um, Did you let the cat sleep in your bed last night? You know, they need to consider the context and then identify what steps that they need to take to address what's going on in order to best help them live the rich, meaningful, long life that they want. What do they need to do? Do they need to call the doctor? Do they need to, you know, drink some fluids and wait 30 minutes and see if their head clears up? What is it that they need to do? And empower them to take steps to address their health anxiety, but also to recognize when their anxiety may be emotion-based reasoning versus fact-based. There can be anxiety about abandonment. Uh, People, when they have a diagnosis, not necessarily just when they get it, they may have it for a long time. They meet new people. And if those people find out, or if my colleagues find out, you know, even five, 10, 15 years into it, they may be afraid of abandonment and rejection. So that can be a regular issue to discuss with them. And there's lots of law out there about um, how people can find out. And most of the time, uh, it's incumbent upon the person to decide who they are going to tell about their uh, HIV status. Most people who get a diagnosis of HIV go through a period of death anxiety. They hear HIV, they hear AIDS, and they think it is a death sentence like right now. So they go through a period where they're contemplating their own mortality, doing a lot of reflectiveness. This is not unique to HIV. People who get a cancer diagnosis uh, go through the same process. But it is important for a lot of people to process this in therapy or with a spiritual leader to allay those anxieties so they're not regularly perseverating on what the end is going to be like. And some people just have good old generalized anxiety disorder. They're worried about a lot of stuff. They may have had it before they got their diagnosis, or it may be triggered or intensified by their diagnosis or by the medication. And and anxiety is a signal that the HPA axis is hyperactive um, or sensing a threat of some sort, whether there's actually one there or it's a false signal. We don't know, but it's important to help people develop tools to deal with that generalized anxiety so they're not stressing their system out and suppressing their immunity. HPA axis kicks on. One of the first things it does after it causes the body to dump um, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and glucose is to suppress that immune system. And we really want to try to minimize that as much as possible. People will experience depression and grief because of a variety of losses, physical losses, whether it's balance or energy, stamina, sexual function. We went through a whole list of things. Cognitively, and we're going to talk about some of the cognitive impairments in a minute. Interpersonal losses or anticipated interpersonal losses, you know, people that may reject them or abandon them. And in some cases, in many cases, financial losses because treatment is expensive. 
because at a certain point they may not be able to work anymore or work as much as they used to because they have to spend money on modifications to their environment in order to make it safe because they have balance problems. There are a lot of things that may come up as a result of having the diagnosis that they never anticipated and it may make them, because these things are out of their control and they're kind of thrust upon the person, they may go through a period of depression and grief. They also may experience depression, and I think I'm going to talk about this later, as friends that they meet in support groups as, as their d disease progresses and people pass away. They may experience guilt and shame about getting or having the disease. We also... Now, obviously, people are not going to present in counseling because they're too happy. Um, <laughs> but we do want to address this with people. If they're talking about their distress, we want to validate that. We want to be responsive and empathetic to what they're going through. We also want to help them radically accept what's going on. Living in the and. I can have HIV and have a ritual life. I can have less energy than I used to and still do things that make me happy. So we do want to work on that living in the and, radical acceptance, recognizing that rarely is everything possible going wrong or bad. Cognitively, the person and their significant others need general HIV and health education. They need to know how to best protect themselves, not only from spreading the disease, but also keep themselves healthy as long as they possibly can. And they're making a huge strides in HIV medications and treatments, which is one of the reasons that people are living so much longer now than they did 20, 30 years ago. Unfortunately, HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders, HAND, uh, impacts about 30% or more of people with HIV. And they found that... In many people, it is not related to their CD4 T-cell count. Uh, so it's not necessarily related to their viral load, but uh, people with HIV do have a syndrome, I guess we could call it, that they've identified as those HIV-associated neurocognitive disorders. We want to screen our clients when they come in regularly, just like you do a mental status exam for other people. Um, we do want to screen for symptoms of forgetfulness, confusion, difficulty paying attention, sudden shifts in mood or behavior, muscle weeks, clumsiness, forgetting to take medications, trouble coming up with words during conversation, losing their train of thought, getting lost or having difficulty with directions if they didn't have that problem before, difficulty multitasking, forgetting about activities of daily, um, daily living. And difficulty concentrating. Now, a lot of these sound, you know, very, very familiar or very, very similar to symptoms of dementia. And we do want to make sure that if we see these, we're referring back to the physician so they can get a neuro workup if they need to. But we also need to identify these symptoms, whatever the person's presenting with, and help them identify strategies to deal with it if they're forgetful. 
uh, if they have difficulty remembering appointments or to eat or to take their medication, push notifications, um, signs, whatever it is that can help them remember to do what they need to do. And we want to review that on a week-to-week basis to make sure that those interventions are continuing to work. I know for me, I can put a sign up on the refrigerator or somewhere to remind me to do something. And I remember and I see it for the first couple of days, but then I habituate to it and I completely forget it's there after that. So we still want to, you know, make sure that the person is, and we want to check those boxes for treatment compliance and make sure that our interventions are continuing to work. As the neurocognitive disorders progress, we may need to make alterations to accommodate that. If they're having confusion, encouraging people to speak more slowly, to um, eliminate distracting noises, if they're having difficulty processing what you're saying, turning off the television can be helpful. Writing things down so it prevents confusion. They can see what they need to see. They can process at their own rate. And visual processing of language is different than auditory. So some people may do better hearing other Others may do better um, reading things. If they have difficulty paying attention, helping them chunk tasks that they need to do into short spans, uh, even things that they like to do, like going to a movie, watching a movie. Maybe they can't go to a movie in a theater anymore because you can't have them stop the reel every 15 minutes. But if they have difficulty paying attention and they want to watch a movie at home, Every 15 minutes or so, maybe they get up and they pause the movie and they get up and take a break and then come back. It's going to be important to talk with them about what works for them. Difficulty paying attention can be problematic if it's during things like cooking. Uh, So we need to identify specifically the situations in which they have difficulty paying attention and help them figure out strategies to manage that. This all goes to increasing their sense of self-efficacy, their sense of personal control, which will help alleviate or buffer against some of that depression, helplessness, hopelessness stuff. If they have sudden shifts in mood or behavior, helping them be aware of that and be mindful as much as they can of those shifts. And they may not be preventable, but potentially... Uh, keeping track of triggers for those shifts in, in mood or behavior so you can eliminate vulnerabilities or mitigate vulnerabilities when possible. With muscle weakness and clumsiness, these are things that we talked about in the physical area. They may need to sit down more frequently. They may need assistance moving things. Maybe they have a dog And, you know, maybe they can't get a 50-pound bag of dog food anymore. They're going to have to get the seven-pound bag and just get a couple of them. Any sort of adaptation that you can think of can be very empowering to people. If they forget to take medications or forget which medications they need to take, that can be a problem. Thankfully, we do have apps that can send really annoying, persistent notifications to take medications. And they can order their medications pre-packaged. That is a service that is available and can be very helpful to people. Them not to get frustrated because the more frustrated they get, the harder it's going to be to come up with that word. But also helping the people who are interacting with them understand that they may need to just slow down and be patient for a second. It can be very uh, frustrating and invalidating if the person's trying to come up with the word and somebody else just kind of jumps in and tells them what they're thinking. 
If they become lost or have difficulty with directions, it may be important to make sure that at a certain point they may not be able to drive if they have difficulty, you know, figuring out where they are. They may need to ride public transportation or get assistance with transportation. With multitasking, encourage them, encouraging them to simplify, for example. And as we talked about earlier, forgetting ADLs goes with forgetfulness. Sometimes they may need to even have a, no, a push notification in there reminding them to. And we've all gotten, been in that place before where we've been so preoccupied with other things or something else is going on that we forget to, if you've had a new baby in the house or you've just moved or something, it's not as weird as you may think. I mean, a lot of people frequently forget to eat. It's really important for people with HIV to keep their energy up and keep their nutrition status adequate. So we need to help them figure out how to do that in, in a way that's meaningful for them. Environmentally, people with HIV have a reduced immune system. They need to protect themselves as much as possible from infection. And that's not just, well, that's viral or bacterial. If they get a cut, they need to treat it right away. During flu season, they may need to take extra precautions. They need to do better at wiping down surfaces. Whatever they can do to protect themselves from infection and illness is going to be important because the immune system needs to focus on keeping that HIV. They also, unfortunately, need to need safety threats. And that can be from other people. Um, and, and generally, when I'm talking about physical threats that aren't infection, that's what I'm talking about. But we're also talking about safety in the environment. If they're forgetful and they leave something on the stove, we don't want them to catch the house on fire. So we need to make sure that they are safe in their environment from other people as well as from, you know, environmental sources of, of danger. What can you do to help somebody who's forgetful um, and having difficulty remembering things? to remember to uh, check on the roast in an hour and a half or something. What do they need to do? Sometimes it, you know, having caregivers come in, not living alone, assisted living can become necessary. But a lot of times that's well down the road. We just want to keep an eye out for any signs that the person may be struggling. Because when they struggle with cognitive issues, a lot of times... One of the first signs is the forgetfulness, and that impacts their medication compliance, which impacts their ability to prolong their life and keep, their, uh, keep the HIV under control. We also need to consider their employment opportunities. There is still discrimination by employers and colleagues. I know there's not supposed to be, but there is. Let's just, you know, call it what it is. It exists out there. So we need to educate them about the client, as well as employers, if you do advocacy in the community, about the Americans with Disabilities Act, and also educate the community about HIV and HIV transmission. And you can't get it through hugging people, through shaking hands, through those sorts of... So people are less anxious about being around somebody with HIV. We also want to make sure that they are aware of the JAN Network, the Job Accommodation Network, which lists a whole host of reasonable accommodations to help people with HIV stay employed and be optimally productive. And a lot of it goes back to what we were talking about 
earlier based on some of neurocognitive issues. You know, maybe they need to sit down more frequently because they've got muscle weeks or they need to take breaks more often. They need to have a refrigerator nearby so they have access to their blood sugar up. Those were a couple of the things that I remember. But you can go to the JAN network and just there's a little button there that says HIV AIDS and you can click on that and it will tell you a variety. I'm sure it's not completely inclusive, but a variety of different reasonable accommodations that they have come up with over time uh, to meet the needs of people with HIV. Interpersonal challenges can be a big issue. They may lose social support. As people who don't understand HIV distance from them, if they are engaging in relationships or sexual activities that are not approved of by their family, they may be rejected for that uh, regardless of their HIV status. So there can be some upheaval in their social support. We need to make sure that we advocate whenever possible, educate whenever possible, and also make sure that we connect them with HIV support groups in the, in the area and online uh, so they can maintain levels of social support and talk with people who understand what they're going through. There's stigma and discrimination associated with HIV, education, and advocacy. If they decide they're going to tell others they're HIV positive, they may need to role play that in session to talk, to explore what that's going to go like, how they're going to handle peace reaction. Uh, there is information on the CDC website and on, I believe it's AIDS.gov, that talks about uh, different strategies for telling people that you are HIV positive that you may refer somebody to so they can look over strategies. They can decide who they want to tell and when. And there are interpersonal challenges dealing with the death of friends, family members who had HIV if they, regardless of what they died from, if they died from cancer or HIV, it's, it's a death. And a lot of times people with HIV are at higher risk for cancer, especially um, a particular kind of cancer. It's like uh, Kaparsky's sarcoma or something. I can't remember what it is. But anyway, if they die specifically from an AIDS-related illness, people who have HIV may take it more um, powerfully than if somebody with HIV dies of something like a car accident. But we don't want to minimize that. Obviously, death involves grief. Uh, but we do need to recognize that they may see their own mortality in the death of friends and loved ones have HIV or AIDS. We want to help people work on their self-esteem. Having HIV, having any sort of chronic can impact people's self-esteem because it changes their vision of what the future was going to be like. And it may in some, in some ways alter their perception of themselves. So we want to help them take this diagnosis, whatever it is they've got, in this case, HIV, and see it as a source of opportunity for strength instead of seeing themselves as being a victim of this seeing themselves being a powerful force fighting against the disease we can help them work on acceptance of themselves with the condition as well as acceptance of the condition and 
making sure that they are attending to their love and belonging needs. I mean, let's just think about basic Maslow hierarchy. We want to make sure they're physically safe and then comes love and uh, safety and then comes love and belonging. People need to feel loved and that will go a long way to help buffering their stress. So in general, physically, we want to help people uh, make sure that they are considering doing everything they can to regulate their sleep, get the highest quality of sleep, and regulate their circadian rhythms. That will help regulate that HPA axis. Exercise has been shown to be helpful for a variety of different reasons. Not only does it increase some of your feel-good chemicals, it can also reduce pain. And low-intensity exercise has actually been shown to keep joints more flexible and in some cases to actually reduce inflammation. The type of exercise amount dictated by the physician. Nutrition. We need to make sure that they are educated about what nutrition they need and their um, dietitian or their doctor will do that. But we can also help make sure that they have access to nutrition. Not everybody has access to affordable nutrition. So we may need to make referrals to food banks or um, other places that can help them get the uh, foods that they need. Medication compliance is important. We need to make sure that they know what they're supposed to take and can take it as they're supposed to, which can involve getting it prepackaged. If they can't access it, they can't afford it for some reason. There are services out there through the Ryan White Foundation uh, you can find out about that can help people afford their HIV. We can also educate them about clinical trials, for example, if that's something that they feel that they want to explore with their physician. We want to help them learn about immune system enhancement. And I don't mean anything by this except reducing stress, making sure that they are eating well, getting sunlight, because vitamin D is very strongly involved with um, reducing inflammation improving mood and helping the immune system. They're not exactly sure how, but they know vitamin D is a big one. We can help them with non-pharmacological pain management strategies, guided imagery, meditation. They've also found that aromatherapy, certain essential oils have actually been associated, I believe bergamot's one of them, with a reduction in pain in people with chronic pain issues. And I have several videos on non-pharmacological pain management on the website. If you're interested, hormone balancing can be another issue that they need to look into. If it, if they start telling you that they're having difficulty with their libido or with uh, sexual functioning, that's another thing. Normalize for them, help them figure out how to cope with the symptoms they're experiencing right now, but also help them communicate with their physician to address anything from the physiological standpoint possible. Affectively. Helping them develop psychological flexibility, envisioning what a rich and meaningful life looks like to them now. Okay. Okay. We've got this chronic condition. That's fine. What does the next chapter look like? What does that rich and meaningful life look like? And what can I do? How can I best use my energy to improve every next moment? Encourage them to develop distress tolerance and coping skills. Those are Counseling 101 tools that we've talked about many, many times. And to infuse happiness, making sure that they're doing things or trying to do things every day that helps them feel happy. Happiness, laughter actually improves the immune system. 
you know, there is a clinical reason. You can go on PubMed and you can find the uh, studies that have shown that laughter actually does help with reducing inflammation and improving the immune system. So, you know, why not? Cognitively, provide individualized HIV and health education. Not everybody is at the same course of the disease when they come in. Not everybody has the same presenting issues. They may have already had, for example, diabetes into it. So their treatment is going to be very different than somebody who didn't have that. Um, pointing them to the right resources. Since some of these things fall outside of our scope of competence, it's important to point them to the right resources and the people who can help them understand more about their condition if it's not something. Cognitively helping them with scheduling their day so they don't get overwhelmed, they don't get too exhausted. It's important that they not get physically run down. Uh, that's another way of helping to keep their immune system strong. And we talked regularly about using push notifications to address issues of forgetfulness and uh, treatment compliance. Environmentally. Looking at those reasonable accommodations, and for some people, this also may end up including getting an, emotion, an emotional support animal to help them cope with what's going on. I'm super positive pro-emotional support animal because of the effects that it has on reducing blood pressure. We know hypertension's a problem. Increasing oxytocin and helping people feel calmer. We can also, not necessarily with a patient, but... If we can, if you have the ability through your organization, participate in advocacy and public education about HIV, HIV prevention, HIV treatment. And interpersonally, we can help people enhance their relationships so their relationships are more supportive and meet their needs more effectively, maybe, by making sure that they have good communication skills, they have social support, not only from significant others, but also from people who have HIV, and we can educate social support. HIV impacts the person physically, affectively, cognitively, environmentally, and relationally. Behavioral health professionals can aid in screening for comorbid or confounding conditions and making referrals as appropriate. We also can enhance and maintain motivation for treatment compliance as sometimes taking medications that make you sick uh, is a challenge. So we need to help people figure out, you know, how to enhance and maintain that motivation. We can assist in processing powerful emotions related to the diagnosis and associated issues. We can introduce cognitive behavioral tools and strategies to help the person cope with emotions, but also, you know, some of the physical and cognitive aspects of and educate the individual, significant others, and the community about HIV transmission and treatment in order to reduce stigma as well as improve health behaviors. Are there any questions? I appreciate you all being with me today, and hopefully there was some new information. I know when I was putting it together, I was not aware of all the different ways that HIV actually impacted the person's physiology, which we know has a ripple effect on their um, emotional health. So I thought that was kind of cool. Now, 
Thursday's presentation is on screening and uh, screening and awareness. And they're, they have made so many strides. If you haven't had your HIV class recently, um, they have made so many strides in uh, prevention, treatment, and even they're in phase three clinical trials for a couple of different vaccines right now. So that's exciting. And we'll be talking about that on Thursday. Until then, have a great day. Have a great week, and I'll see you on Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.